Section 16 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Melitzia. The troubadours and trouvères, so-called from troubar or trouvère, to find, were in sharp contrast to the vagrant professional musicians, noble knights, who practised the graceful arts as gifted amateurs, primarily in the impassioned praise of a woman and for the sole prize of her favour, with such zeal and superior intelligence that they soon outstripped in skill their meaner colleagues, who now became their servants. France was, it will be recalled at this time, linguistically divided into two sections. The long doc was spoken in the south, and the Languedoc in the north. In the south, in Provence and Languedoc, the so-called troubadour movement had its inception. That glorious land, endowed with all the charms of sunny skies, which surpassed all other European provinces in culture, prosperity, and spiritual contentment, was the cradle of this chivalry, with which are associated supreme sensual enjoyment, a passion for splendour, and the worship of women, thus uniting all the conditions of poetic art. Chivalry spread rapidly beyond the limits of these provinces, however, and across the Pyrenees, where lay the three Christian kingdoms of Castile-Léon, Navarre, and Aragon. Counts, dukes, and kings extended their patronage to this knightly poet-band, and vied with each in attaching to their courts a brilliant assemblage of singers. The Counts of Provence, especially Raymond Berengar III and his successors, the Counts of Toulouse, Anjou, and Poitou, the Kings of Aragon, Castile, and Léon, the Margraves of Montferrat and Est, the French royal court, where Eleanor of Poitou was queen, and the court of England under Henry II, the second husband of Queen Eleanor, provided rallying centres. Even the sovereigns themselves were ambitious for the favour of the muses. The earliest troubadour of prominence was Guillaume, Count of Poitiers, 1087-1127. Contemporary with him was Robert, Duke of Normandy, the son of William the Conqueror, who, after returning from the Crusade, 1106, was till his death a prisoner of his brother Henry I of England in the castle of Cardiff, where he is said to have attained the rank of a Welsh bard. This remarkable and sudden flowering of lyric poetry among the knighthood of the 11th century, continuing for two centuries and more, the record of which stands brightly emblazoned upon the shield of musical history, has never been satisfactorily explained. Riemann thinks that the education of the young nobility in the monasteries certainly had a refining influence. The familiarity with old Breton and British literature, the legend of King Arthur's round table, the old Celtic narrative poems and romances, especially the legend of Tristan and Isolt, which were known through old French adaptations, likewise had an influence. By their own testimony, however, the Provençal poets found their immediate suggestions in folk song itself, as interpreted by the jongleurs. The latter's entire repertoire of classic and medieval chronicles was adopted by the troubadours, whose own experiences in the Crusades later caused them to substitute recent chivalric deeds for antique subjects. 
the forms of the jongleur's art we find again in the troubadour creations but refined in style governed by definite laws of poetry more exalted in sentiment so that without sacrifice of spontaneity they have gained distinction and variety and have become conscious works of art as we are concerned here only with their musical significance which indeed has been generally ignored by literary historians and underestimated by musicians we shall have little to say about these forms for great as is the variety of their content we fail to find parallel distinctions in their musical settings it should not be overlooked however that certain poetic devices and ingenuities gave rise to more advanced musical forms i e the repetition of a phrase on two rhyming verses at the beginning of a song followed by a variant which is the elementary form of the lead the so-called verse gives a starting point for troubadour lyrics this was the name given to a strictly normal composition in a measure of eight syllables with probably an amplification of the more sporadic uneven verse forms of the jongleurs the chanson is a more sophisticated form consisting of alternating verses of different lengths girand de bornay eleven seventy five to twelve twenty is known as its first exponent then we find again the familiar narrative form in the guise of chansons de geste epics recounting deeds of valour the sirvantes employed in a lover's address to his mistress as well as in satire which is an early prototype of the famous terza rima later adopted by dante and petrarch and the tenson a controversial song in which the same subject is treated by rival poets real and fictitious in alternating verses the breton narrative or lie of melancholy character as represented in the tristan legend was also adopted by the troubadours other lyrics are variously designated as canson canzona sola a merry song romance more characteristic of the trouvères alba or bard a morning song serena serenade an evening song and pastorel the favourite form already mentioned which is the richest in popular elements dance rhythms refrains etc the pastorel is characterised by extreme simplicity of theme its characters are shepherds and shepherdesses and it usually begins in the narrative form the narrator fixing the time of his adventure the early morn and the scene invariably a field where he meets a shepherdess in the shade of a bush or at the edge of a spring the amorous dialogue which follows has a happy conclusion if the lover be a shepherd an unhappy one if he be a knight the sentiments expressed in the troubadour pastoral are of course rather those of knight and lady in the disguise of shepherds than those of real shepherds robin and marion the usual hero and heroine of pastoral songs are the central personalities of a whole cycle the origin of which is exceedingly ancient far behind the day of adam de la halle who is perhaps the most famous composer of pastorals most of the medieval pastorals preserved to us belong to this cycle the famous roban mem is still sung we are told by the peasants of northern france it runs as follows this example is sung to the text roban mem roban ma 
demandait Simara. The pastoral song survived the Middle Ages and was a favourite down to the Revolution, long before which it had, however, found its way into the aristocracy and polite society of cities, and so lost the little natural flavour which still clung to it in the days of the troubadours. Robin and Marion made way for Tiersis and Aminta, Phyllis and Lycidas, beribboned and bespangled counterfeits of the original article. To illustrate how hackneyed this type of song, and the plays later made out of them had become in the time of Molière, we may quote Monsieur Jourdain. Why all these shepherds? I see nothing else. To which the dancing-master replies peremptorily, When characters speak in music it is necessary, for the sake of realism, to make them shepherds. Song was ever affected by shepherds. It is hardly natural that princes and princesses should vent their passions in musical dialogue. Among troubadour dance forms there should also be mentioned the carole or ronde de carole, retuenza, estampida, and esplingeri, jumping dance. Particularly notable is the estampida of Rambo de Vacueiras, 1180-1270, a troubadour at the court of Montferrat the lover of the beautiful princess Beatrice. The story connected with it aptly illustrates the influence of the jongleurs. When one day a band of these, native of France, came to the court, they awakened general merriment with a new estampida played on their viols. Only Rambaud could not be roused from his melancholy, and Beatrice asked him therefore to sing a song himself, and so regain a happier mood whereupon he composed the charming dance-song, Calenda Maya, in the manner of the jongleur's estampida.
It should be noted here that in the transcriptions of troubadour songs and most of the small manuscript treasure preserved to us still once unfolding, there has until recently prevailed the error to interpret them as measured music. Measured music came into use, we have seen, with Franco of Cologne, about AD 1200, but nevertheless many writers did not adopt it for centuries thereafter. The troubadours persistently followed the metre of the verse instead of fitting their melodies into a set rhythmic scheme, and most naturally so when we consider that they were primarily poets. Hence the square notes in which they note their melodies are really nothing but neumes on a staff. This use has given rise to the error common to most historians, who enforcing the beautiful, spontaneous tunes into a straight jacket of modern measurement, deprived them of their rhythmic and melodic grace in a manner which did violence to the verses as well. In considering their musical quality, we must call attention to the fact that, while devoid of the rich beauties of modern harmony, these songs, availing themselves both of the antique modes and modern tonalities, are able to convey nobility of sentiment, passion, and varied shades of emotion. Breathing the tender grace of a day that is dead, they are, in some instances, still able to charm in our noisy age, and the influence which they had upon the course of the art can hardly be over-appreciated. It has been mentioned that the jongleurs came largely into the service of the troubadours. It is they who accompanied the knights in their travels from castle to castle, providing the lighter kinds of amusement, and the instrumental accompaniment such as it was on their viols or rotters sometimes indeed singing their master's songs, with the dissemination of which they were frequently entrusted. That they often undertook to improve these compositions on their own account, we gather from the words of Père d'Auvergne, and others, entreating jongleurs not to meddle with their verses and melodies. Sometimes, no doubt, they were more gifted than the troubadour, and provided the melody for his verses as well. In some instances, indeed, a jongleur became a troubadour or trouvère, and sometimes a troubadour became a jongleur, as in the case of Gorselm Faidit, who lost money at dice and was forced to earn a livelihood by his art. For that was the real distinction between the two. One sang for glory, the other for gain. As long as they did not make a trade of their art, lowly-born and bastards took equal rank with princes and nobles, in the earlier periods at least. While at first the troubadour disdained to accompany his own singing, he soon learned the art from the jongleur, and in many cases became his own accompanist. His favourite instruments were the viol, the rotter, a former fiddle, and the organistrum, the middle-aged hurdy-gurdy. The quality of the melodies or chords he wrested from them can hardly be conjectured, for we must not forget that of polyphony, still in its incipient stages among the learned musicians of the church, he had no knowledge, not at least until about the time of Adam de la Halle, 1240 to 1287, who forms the bridge, as it were, from the trouvères to the scientific musicians of the Netherlands school. We must now briefly enumerate a few of the illustrious Provençal troubadours. 
there were about four hundred poets of fame. The list is headed by Guillaume, Count of Poitiers. Soon after him comes the fiery and poetic Bernard de Ventador, 1140-1195, patronized by Queen Eleanor, and Macabrun, the foundling, who wrote between 1150 and 1195 in a most involved style and generally a satirical vein. Then comes Geoffrey Rudel, Prince of Blyer, 1140-1170, famous for his languishing love songs. Père d'Auvergne, 1152-1215, the master of the troubadours, renowned for artistic finish. Guillaume de Castebagne, 1181-1196, whose poetic adulation of his lady cost him his life at the hand of her jealous husband, while the object of his affection was forced to eat his heart. Père Vidal, 1175-1215, perhaps the most celebrated of all the troubadours. Bertrand de Vaughan, 1180-1195, famous for his war songs. Folquet de Marseille, 1180-1231, Bishop of Toulouse. Rambo de Vacairas, 1180-1207, the cynical and caustic Monk of Montaudon, 1180-1200, Arnaud Daniel, 1180-1200, a nobleman of Perigord, celebrated by Petrarch and Dante. Gorsem Faidit, 1190-1240. Savary de Morlion, 1200-1230, who fought with Raymond of Toulouse against Simon de Montfort. Père Cardinal, 1210-1230. And Guiron Riquier, 1250-1294, the last true troubadour. Among the women, of whom seventeen achieved great reputation, the foremost was Beatrice, Countess of D, and wife of Guillaume de Poitiers. The crushing out of the troubadours is ascribed to the Albigensian Crusade, which lasted from 1207 to 1244. The Albigensis' home was in the very heart of the troubadour country, and the legate of Pope Innocent III, sent as inquisitor, was murdered there during his attempt to extirpate the heresy. The crusade of revenge which followed was particularly directed against Count Raymond of Toulouse, staunch patron of the troubadours, who flocked to his standard and raised their voices in songs of war and religious controversy. Their odes, pasquinades, and sievants were sung by their jongleurs in marketplaces and at fairs, while they themselves girt on their swords and fought. During a fierce war of twenty years, waves of soldiers and clergy swept through the lonely vineyards and gardens, leaving only blackened ruin in their wake. The bright days of the troubadour were ended, the society that supported him was crushed, and the blow that fell in Provence reverberated through all the land. The race was not extinct, however. Its representatives found a welcome at the courts of Castile, of Aragon, and of Sicily, where Frederick the Second was king. From this last centre they unquestionably exerted an important influence upon the Italian Renaissance, to which we shall recur in a later chapter. In this connection we may mention the interesting fact that the poet Dante, early in the 14th century, visited the troubadours in their home and drew inspiration from their art. The Trouvere's ascendancy dates from about 1137, when Eleanor of Aquitaine became Queen of France. At her court, the knights who spoke the Long d'Oeil came in contact with those of the South, 
and from them received their poetic impulse. Besides this linguistic difference, the only other distinction is the somewhat more earnest character of true vers songs. Among their illustrious representatives we must name first King Richard I, 1169-1199, of England, Coeur de Lyon, and his Menestrel, Blondel de Nel. Then there are Marie de France, at the court of Henry II of England, Thibault IV, Count of Champagne, afterward King of Navarre, 1208-1253, to Raoul de Coucy, end of 12th century, Perrin d'Angécourt, Audefroy le Bastard, Guillaume de Dijon, Gérin de Bretal, and Adam de Laral, surnamed Le Bossu d'Arras, the Hunchback of Arras, whose works are preserved to us and are published by Kussmaker in modern notation. That he was a genuinely inspired poet and composer is eloquently attested by his chansons, rondeaux, and motets, in which he also displays a complete mastery of the musical science of his day. The most important of his works is the pastoral comedy, Le Jeu de Robin et de Marion, which he arranged at the command of the King of Naples about the year 1285. Very little of the music was his own. Most of it was taken from the stock of popular song. As a wanderer over Europe, a man of free, wild life, who had yet undergone strict musical training in the monasteries of northern France, he is interesting as showing the contrast of theoretical and of actual music, and the first efforts to combine the one with the other. It is difficult, if not impossible, to say just how much the troubadours and the trouvères influenced the development of music. The troubadours found a footing in Sicily and southern Italy, and influenced the growth of the so-called Ars Nova, which will be treated in the next chapter. Melodies of the Trouvères were adopted by the Netherlands composers as the foundations of their masses. These are definite points at which secular and religious music certainly touched. If, beyond this, the relations between them are vague and hard to trace, the movements of which the troubadours and the Trouvères are manifestations are nonetheless of vital significance in the history of music. Through them the undercurrent of real free music, which we may be sure never ceased to flow even when the crushing weight of scholasticism was heaviest, welled to the surface. They represent spontaneous joy and human delight in ages fettered with theology and logic. They represent the real source of music. Those who would believe that the great Italian Renaissance was not primarily a return to classicism, but an all-powerful and general awakening of man to the beauty and delight of earth, will find in the music of the troubadours and trouvères this natural delight expressed. If, as it happened, music was the last to rise up in the freedom of the Renaissance, it was because music got no help in her need of expression from a study of the music of the ancients. Music had to build slowly by her own means, unaided by precedent and past accomplishment, fed and encouraged only by the natural love of man's heart to sing, a love which is here attested in the Dark Ages, and to which she finally turned. We must again give our attention to Germany, where a musical development parallel to that of the Provençal and French chivalry had been going forward since the 12th century. Art music as such had so far been confined in Germany to the church, the composers and scholars devoted to its practice were to be found largely in the monasteries. But about the beginning of the 12th century, 
an attempt was made by poet-singers of noble birth to found a school of secular song, expressing their ideals of life and appealing to people of their rank. This conscious effort of aristocratic singers shared with the unconscious achievement of folk song a certain range of topics, notably historical and sacred, and a certain naivete of attitude. In other respects it differed from it radically, both in content and in manner, for it was founded upon the ideal of chivalry and was full of the spirit of gallantry. But while the southern poet-singers made profane love their one great theme, German chivalric poetry in a curious way blended the medieval adoration of the Virgin Mary with the worship of women in general. From this devotion to Fru Minne, Dame Love, it was called Minnegesang, and its singers Minnesinger. The beauties of nature, ever-present in German poetry, also formed an important subject in Minnegesang. Though simple enough in itself, this first art song of the Germans never equalled the ingenuousness of the Volkslied, for a burden of knowledge hampered the flight of the poet's imaginations and chilled the ardour of their sentiments, and in the attempt to escape from base realities they frequently lost themselves in elusive abstractions. The allegorical element, almost absent in the Volkslied, was largely represented in Minnegesang, which is full of poetic allusions to the heavenly virtues that lead to salvation, and to the deadly sins that pave the road to perdition. Minnegesang was more personal and direct than the Volkslied, which tends to socialise or generalise an individual experience until it applies and appeals to all. A product of the castles, Minnegesang was frequently a matter of ambition, encouraged by the hope of finding favour with a princely patron or winning the love of a high-born lady. The Volkslied, a product of the people, made no such appeal and was its own reward. The tournaments of song were therefore limited to the Minnesinger and represented a counterpart of those other contests which in the period of chivalry brought out physical prowess and skill. There is an element of partisan controversy in the writings of even recent historians concerning the respective merits of the troubadours and Minnesinger, some maintaining the superiority and originality of the latter, while others like Combarieux call them simply imitators of the troubadours. The fact that they appeared somewhat later is not sufficient evidence for such a statement, however, and may be explained by the fact that in Germany chivalry flourished later. The German knights, it will be remembered, did not participate in the First Crusade. Doubtless the same influences making for exalted expression were at work in both countries, and the early epics of which we have spoken were in a sense the common property of both. Moreover, the epic poems of the Celtic people, the Breton, Lies, etc., preceded the Provençal lyrics and probably reached Germany by direct road. A fundamental difference between the two schools, which strongly argues a separate origin, is the fact that, in form, Minnegesang approached the heavier epic style of the northern bards, rather than the lighter lyric vein of the southern singers. Inasmuch as German poetry contained a great variety of verse forms with a varying number of syllables, Minnegesang developed a great variety of rhythms. Unlike Romance lyricism, German composition never forsook the principle of accentuation for the sake of mere syllabic proportion, enumeration. In other words, the Germans considered only the accented syllables, 
subordinating the unaccented so that they might be either eliminated or increased in number without disturbing the rhythmic contour, which means a very different relation between text and melody. Melody corresponding with verbal accent makes for correct emphasis and a natural and logical declamation. The stereotyped contour of the troubadour songs, which their composers sought to overcome by excessive melodic ornament, is not found to the same extent in Minigazan, where the change of hypermeters and catalectics provides in itself a considerable variety of rhythm, even where the same melody is retained for a succession of stanzas. This sort of adaptation must have required considerable skill in execution. It has, moreover, given no end of trouble to modern transcribers in the determination of phrase limits. In the example here given, we follow the interpretation of Riemann. It is an excerpt from the Jena manuscript, being the only example dating from the 12th century. Its author is Old Speervogel, and its serious contemplative character will illustrate the difference between the works of Troubadours and Minnesinger. We give only the first line of the melody in four of the thirteen forms which it assumes over the various texts of succeeding verses. Melody 1 Melody 2 Melody four. A form especially cultivated by the Minnesinger was the Obad, or Targa lead, which originated with the Provencal troubadours. In its German form, it usually represents a lover lingering near his beloved whom the watchman's trumpet call announcing the dawn's approach speeds on his homeward way. In the earliest known Targa lied by Diet von Eist, 1180, the song of a bird is heard instead of the watchman's call, but in later examples the horn call assumes greater prominence and is even represented by a melody without text at the beginning or in the middle of a verse. In one by Vislav, such a sequence of apparently superfluous notes at the end of the first verse puzzled transcribers until recently, when its significance was discovered. In subsequent verses of this example, words are supplied for the notes of the call. This example sung to the following text. List du in der Minne droh, ich sehe den lechten Morgen froh, de Vorgeln singen den Tag, Herr ist ho.
the instrumental portions may perhaps have been hummed in imitation of the horn but the principle is the same still later we find examples such as nachthorn and taghorn of the monk of salzburg which are marked auch gut zublasen translation also good for blowing one of the early names of minnesingers is that of tannhauser or tannhäuser who was born between 1210 and 1220 to him is credited a buslied song of penitence but it was probably in existence long before customary among penitents and only later ascribed to him the participation of tannhäuser in the song tournaments of the wartburg as represented in the wagner opera is obviously a dramatic license of the composer as the event took place before his birth in 1208 one of the most striking figures is nithart von rieventhal who endeavoured to infuse new life into the courtly formalism of minnegesang by drawing upon the folk song and folk dance he called the new genre which he created and which was a mild parody upon the peasant tunes then popular in rural austria and bavaria dörperlicher singen village singing in contrast to the herfischer singen courtly singing of his class his dance songs differ from other minnesinger's lyrics in their syllabic structure as of necessity their pronounced rhythm did not admit superfluous syllables the melodic correspondence between rhyming verses already noted in troubadour chansons is a prominent feature with nithart but more remarkable than this is the fine imitation of melodic elements corresponding to short rhyming lines within simple verses stollen or abgesang this example sung to the following lyrics wis willkommen meinen schin wer möcht uns ergesen din wann du kannst verschwenden pin das sagt uns die judith der winter ist so lang hier gelegen auf dem welt und in den wegen williglich gab er den segen da er von hinnen schied nu will du die heide aber ehren und will kleinen vogelen die suse stimme lehren dass sie bald in dem wald ist susan sang gemähn Wislav von Rügen, another minnesinger who tried to leave the beaten path, 
showed a marked tendency toward a more direct and faithful reflection of the emotional contents of his song. His Senende Klage, Longing Complaint, in which he emulates what he refers to as the Senende Wiese, melody, of the untutored man, is an evidence of the attempt of Minnesinger at characterization, and we frequently meet with such specific names of Turner or Weisen, which indicate the intention to convey an individual sentiment in melody. The apparent sameness in many of the tunes seems less insistent when we consider the question of tempo, which must have differentiated their performance, but which was never indicated in the manuscripts. Hermann der Damen and Heinrich von Meissen, surnamed Frauenlob for his songs in praise of women, were famous for their Leiche, allegorical sacred songs on the order of their sequences, with melodies strictly adapted to a text consisting of irregular stanzas with little repetition. Of the songs of the two greatest Minnesinger, Wolfram von Eschenbach and Walter von der Vogelweide, only the poems exist. The melodies passing for theirs are of doubtful origin. The greatest patrons of Minnegesang among the sovereigns of Germany were the Emperor Frederick I, Barbarossa, who died in 1190, Conradin, the last of the Hohenstaufen, who died 1268, and Wenceslaus of Bohemia, a contemporary of Conradin. Minnegesang was not to the same extent as troubadour poetry a courtly art, yet the castles of these sovereigns naturally became centres of development, as did also the courts of the Austrian dukes, when Heinrich von Melk, their Kurenberger, Dietmar von Eist, and Niethardt held forth. The courts of the margraves of Bavaria and Swabia, where we find the margrave of Rietenburg, Meinlaw von Schwenningen, Speervogel, and Reinmar von Zwetter, and finally the castle of the landgrave of Thuringia, which boasted of such bright ornaments as Tannhäuser, Heinrich von Weldecker, Walter von der Vogelweide, and Wolfram von Eschenbach, of whom the last two have attained the rank of national poets. The formal, stately character of Minnesong prevented its becoming as popular as the troubadour song in France. Another reason for this is the fact that the more pronounced caste feeling of the Germans forbade them to enlist the assistance of musicians of inferior station. Whatever accompaniment there may have been was provided by the poet-singers themselves. With the decline of feudalism and chivalry, and the development of the industries, the middle class acquired a social prominence which roused dormant ambitions and developed latent abilities. The craftsmen had formed societies with strictly graded membership, a most elaborate set of statutes, and rigid ceremonial of initiation. They were as much a social as an intellectual manifestation, being developed to mutual improvement and recreation, and music entered largely into their programme. Association with minnesingers who were not of noble rank, and who, instead of bearing the title Ritter, knight, were called Meister, masters, gradually awakened the desire of the good burghers to emulate the example of the aristocracy and cultivate song in the manner of minnegesang. The story that Emperor Otto I was founder of Meistergesang, master song, and gave to twelve masters, among them Heinrich Frauenlaub, Bartel Regenbogen, and Klingsor, something like a charter, has long been proved a myth, 
since the emperor and these personages were not even contemporaries. But the fact that Frauenlaub, who was one of the last Minnesingers, is claimed as one of the founders of Meistergesang, shows how closely the latter followed upon the former. There is little doubt, however, that the master song was first cultivated in a Meistersingschule, school of master song, in Mayence, whence it spread to other cities, foremost among them Nuremberg, Augsburg, Regensburg, Ulm, and Munich. The Meistersingschulen recruited their members from the singing schools of the artisan guilds. Candidates were subjected to a rigorous examination, and had to account not only for their previous life, their family connections, moral standing, and religious convictions, but had to pledge themselves to hold the ideal of their art, to live a pure and worthy life, and to be loyal and helpful to the fellow members of the school. There were school friends, scholars, poets, and singers. Above them in rank were four merker, markers or judges, one of whom had to compare the text of the song with the scriptural passage upon which it was founded, while the second judged the syllabic accent, the third the rhyme, and the fourth the tune. The highest grade was that of Meister, a title conferred upon him who was capable of fixing the standard of both text and music. Prize contests were a feature of the public performances and carried on the tradition of the song tournament of chivalry. The meetings were held in church. The prize consisted of a string of ornamental coins, a bunch of artificial flowers, or the permission at the end of the meeting to stand at the church door and receive from the parting audience a fee in current coin. The spirit of medieval artisan life and of scholastic formalism was paramount in the organization and all its activities. It is admirably reflected in Richard Wagner's Meistersinger von Nuremberg, where, embodied in the figure of Beckmesser, the Merker becomes the type of the pedant who rates the letter higher than the spirit. As religion was foremost in men's minds at that period, Meistergesang dealt at first mainly with religious topics, and turned out prosy biblical paraphrases with numerous historical and allegorical allusions. The versification followed closely the models of the Minigazang, the structure of the master's strophes being almost identical with that of their aristocratic compatriots. Even the terms weiser and ton, used by the later Minnesingers to denote meter and melody, were adopted by the master singers. The song itself was in the form of a so-called bar. Its parts were gesetze, each gesatz, consisted of two stollen, strophe and antistrophe, sung to the same melody. Then followed a stollen in the tune of the last gesatz. The rules governing the composition of these songs were called tabulateur. The verse form, or ton, was given special names, such as the langer ton, or grauer ton, or suggesting the contents were called bierweiss, Brunnenweiss, Blutton, Lindenschmidtton, or named after the authors as Regenbogenton, Schillerton, etc. Frauenlob was held in such esteem by the greatest of the master singers that Hans Sachs himself wrote some twenty-five songs or more in the Frauenlobton. Although the structure of these songs was hidebound in formal restrictions, 
the spirit reflected a sturdy sincerity which was in keeping with the racial temperament of the singers and not without charm few manuscripts of the meister singers contain the music of the songs and their notation is not always reliable they employed neumes like the minnesingers before them but they limited themselves almost exclusively to semi-breves reserving the minims only for ornamental figures these figures called blumen flowers or fiorituri when inserted as an interlude or at the final cadence made a pleasing effect in contrast to the even movement of the melody which without any perceptible rhythmic division was likely to be monotonous footnote the bloomer was sometimes applied to the first syllable of a song when it was probably intended to prepare the mood but produced a rather ludicrous effect even hans sachs begins his song dre frumer könig jude with a bloomer of ten notes all on the word dre End of footnote. recent musical authorities among them riemann incline to the opinion that the master singer's melodies were far better than the reputation they enjoy while some writers claim that they accompany their songs on the harp the violin lute or zither others make no mention whatever of instrumental accompaniment and genet in his book on hans sachs and his time distinctly states that they were sung without accompaniment among the most famous meistersingers were heinrich frauenlaub mentioned above hans foltz hans rosenplut konrad nachtigall konrad Mörner, michel beheim jörg schiller bartel regenbogen heinrich von uglin and muscatblut but far above his colleagues towers hans sachs the shoemaker poet of nuremberg his achievements as poet dramatist and musician are in even in quality his farces assure him of a more prominent place in german literature than the rank accorded to him in musical history for his setting of the psalms but taken as a whole his personality typifies what was best in the art of his class at that period an art practised under conditions which did not favour the free and bold flight of creative genius it was hans sachs who first of all the master singers openly espoused the cause of the new church by greeting the appearance of luther in his famous song die wittenbergische nachtigall in his naive sincere devotion to the new creed he undertook also to revise some of the older master songs to make them conform to the new spirit and his contributions to protestant church music were highly esteemed by his contemporaries individual impulse both emotional and musical being curbed by rigid rules meistergesang was a less direct expression of personality than minnegesang and a less frank reflection of sentiment than the volkslied lacking spontaneity and wider human appeal it fostered a spirit of severe formalism which could not have much influence upon the development of music in general on the other hand this formalistic severity imparted a technical and spiritual discipline which was not to be undervalued and the stress laid upon a serious and dignified attitude toward the art of music may have done no little toward counterbalancing the frivolous tendencies which sprang up here and there during the religious social and political unrest of the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries nor was the relation between meistergesang and the reformation without influence upon the development of protestant church music for in the slow and measured movement of the songs 
dealing with sacred themes and sung unisono by the members of the Singschule at the opening of their meetings, one can recognize an essential feature of the Protestant chorale. Thus we may conclude with the statement that the real value to posterity of the art movements we have discussed lies in their influence upon the two great social movements that signalize the dawn of the modern era, namely the Renaissance in Italy and the Reformation in Germany, both of which are again reflected in the music of a later day. The new spirit is echoed in the sublime words of Hans Sachs. Awake! Draws nigh the break of day. I hear upon the hawthorn spray a bonny little nightingale. Her song resounds through hill and dale, the night descends the western sky, and from the east the dawn draws nigh. With red ardour the flush of day breaks through the cloud-banks, dull and grey. From the English translation of Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg by Frederick Corder. End of section 16